You're listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. Today's Center for Arizona Policy's Chris St. John welcomes author and speaker Sam Alberry as they discuss Sam's latest book, Seven Myths About Singleness. Sam was our special guest in 2018 for a conference on biblical sexuality featuring his excellent resource, Is God Anti-Gay? And we are fortunate to have him visit with us once again today. And now, here's Chris. I'm here with Sam Alberry, apologist and writer for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and a consulting editor for the Gospel Coalition. At one point in his life, I know he was based in Maidenhead, UK. Right now, I'm reaching out to him from Nashville, Tennessee. He's the author of a number of books, including The Seven Myths on Singleness and Is God Anti-Gay? Additionally, though, I think of him as a Star Wars aficionado, a fandom manifesting itself through the appreciation of the John Williams theatrical score that I listened with him as we traveled through the deserts of the Southwest in Arizona. He also dons a a number of fancy pairs of socks on a regular basis. I'll ask him about those here in just a second. How many pairs of those socks exactly do you have, Sam? Well, I just threw out some of the ones that were slightly more um, falling apart and had big holes in them. <laughs> the answer is not enough. Sam Alberry, it's great to talk to you today. It's so good to be with you. And I'm, I'm for the record, I'm wearing Stormtrooper socks today. I am not surprised. You're in Nashville, Tennessee today, yes? I am indeed. I've been here for two or three weeks. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's hot. So this is not a time of year to be in Nashville. No, just a little bit of humidity, indeed. So you've been hanging out at Emmanuel Church, is that correct? That's right, yes. This has sort of become a, a stateside base for me when I'm when I'm in the U.S. So um, I've been enjoying getting to know the place well and spending more and more time here. That's great. You have experienced the transition there over the last couple of weeks, the, that pastoral transition. Any takeaways from that? It's, it's probably the best planned and most smooth pastoral succession I've seen. Um, it's just, yeah, it, it's been wonderful, actually. It's been a model of how to do it in a non-disruptive way. It doesn't feel like there's been any kind of sudden lurches at any point. Um, it's been very smooth indeed. And a lot of that is to do with how Ray has set things up in a way that his successor will then be in a, in a real position of, you know, he's setting him up to succeed. That's great. I think of everybody I follow on Instagram and Twitter right now, and Ray is one of those who speaks grace and truth and and love in such a balanced and practical way. I just appreciate that man's heart so much. Deeply edifying. Yeah. So how's your speaking schedule? Where are you these days? Um, I was just in San Francisco last week uh, and Detroit the week before that. Um, which has been good fun. Um, first time in both of those cities. Um, in both cases, speaking on on human sexuality and um, San Francisco, obviously, is a is a lively context in which, to <laughs> and yet, a fruitful context. Had a really sure. some wonderful conversations there, and it's just a, a, a constant reminder to me that there is a harvest. Mm. There's a harvest to be had. There are far more. There are so many people who are refugees of the ongoing sexual revolution who don't know they're refugees until they hear that God has something better for them. Hmm. Um, so I had a wonderful encounter with a, with a young lady there who 
I'd been talking in, in my talk about how lust makes someone into a commodity. Um, and she said to me at the end that she was tired of trying to make herself a commodity to other people and she never realized God had more for her than that. So it was powerful. I was deeply moved by my encounter with her and it, it just made me realize God's truth is always merciful to us. Um, so it's, it's been, yeah, it's been interesting. That's great. What about your next project on the horizon? I've seen your book that you have coming up, I think in March of 2020. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's called um, Why Should God Care Who I Sleep With? And mm -hmm. it's, um, it's an evangelistic book uh, looking at Christian sexual ethics. And it's part of a series, uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries has been publishing with the Good Book Company. Um, so that is due out at the beginning of March. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm... It's again. It's been a. I've I've actually learned how to write the book through having lots of conversations like the one I just mentioned, um, and just seeing how the Bible's teaching on this whole issue is where there is enormous traction with people and what kind of questions people have and objections and and all those kinds of things. It's exciting. Can't wait for it. Well, I wanted to chat with you today about the latest book, Seven Myths About Singleness. And for those that are listening, we had Sam here in Phoenix back in March of 2018, and he spoke in Tucson and in Phoenix, a few places around the valley here in Phoenix, and he shared from his book, Is God Anti-Gay? But the one thing I loved and appreciate about you, uh, you, Sam, more than anything, is that it doesn't matter what you're speaking on, because you immediately fill in the blank on what that topic is, but you spend a few minutes on that topic, and then you immediately get to the gospel in Jesus. And I found that so true in this book as well. So yeah, you talk about singleness, and you quickly get to Jesus, and that was true, and is God anti-gay as well. And I really appreciate that about you, Sam. So I want to dive in and get your thoughts on this book. You said that singleness is always defined as negative. It's always the absence of something. Not about, it's always the state about not being married. So that's how singles ministry is defined. It's always the absence of something, right? It is. And we, we tend to think of singleness purely in the negatives um, mm. of, of what you miss out on. And not always aware that there are even unique positives. So I think that is a common theme in, in many, many places. Um, I know that that's, prevalent back in the UK where I'm from. I suspect it's more prevalent here in the US just from my observations. So, um, which is why it's really why I wrote the book. It's, it's to try and show us that the Bible has a, has a more positive view of singleness than, than we tend to. I think what the Bible says actually surprises us now. I wish we had time to go through all seven myths, but the one thing I think that hit me more than anything, and I mean, in full disclosure, I've been married since I was 19 years old, and I'm 45, so you can do the math. I've been married a while, but I, you know, I wanted to really press into a couple of these myths with you, Sam, and as I read the book, the myth that singleness requires a special calling, especially the nature and goodness of the gift of singleness. Uh, can you press into that with me, uh, if you would, for just a minute? This really struck with me as I read this. Yeah, the, so the myth is that I think I think we've seen Paul use the language of, of the gift of singleness, and I think we've assumed that means some people have a special kind of spiritual superpower that enables them to be single and to flourish as single people, but only some people have that capacity. 
Um, I just don't think that can be right. It, it, it would cause us all kinds of problems as you then, you know, I've heard people use that as a, as a justification for going into unbiblical forms of marriage or disobedient forms of relationship. Uh, and they'll justify it by saying, well, I, God never gave me the gift of singleness. Mm. Um, and I fear it could be an excuse for some people not to, not to persevere in marriage. That could think, well, I don't have the gift of being married, it turns out. So I think what Paul is referring to, and this would be consistent with the, the later teaching on gifts in in First Corinthians, is that the gift is the state itself. Uh, whether you are married or single, that condition is meant to be a gift of God's grace through you to other people. It's meant to be a means of serving other people, a means of serving the Lord. And so neither marriage nor singleness is meant to be an end in itself. It's not meant to be, hey, I'm single because um, I get to do everything I want to do in my own way on my own time. Marriage is not meant to be about, hey, now I've got married, married, I've got everything I need. I'm just going to fill up the drawbridge. Whether we're married or single, we're to be those things for the sake of others and to use those things in the Lord's service. Boy, that is good. Later on in the chapter about special calling, you quoted U.S. Senator Ben Sass, who, by the way, is one of my favorites in The Vanishing American Adult. He talked about the underlying problem not being with singleness, but with selfishness. And I think that is so profoundly true that we are fixated on identity and seeking our own good and rolling up the drawbridge. As you mentioned a moment ago, Sam, we need to challenge those who who, uh, defer marriage for ungodly reasons uh, without demeaning those whose singleness is neither their choice or who have been in fact chosen for the sake of the kingdom. And so talk to me about this for just a little bit, that calling that you have to singleness and how that's enabled you to be what God has, uh, has for you, for the kingdom of God, even in your own vocation. Yeah, so for me, singleness has just has really been. It, it, I never felt a, a kind of deep moment early on in my Christian life where I felt God saying, "Right, you're going to be single forever." <laughs> I've, the, the circumstances are such it's never it's never been realistic or appropriate for me to marry, um, and I might not have chosen this, but I'm very thankful God has given it to me. Right. Because, as you say, there are things I've been able to do as a result of my singleness that never would have been possible had I been married, mm-hmm. um, or at least wouldn't have been advisable to do if I was married. So um, being able to write and speak in the way that I do, um, I'm able to have a bit more of an itinerant um, ministry. Um, I've been able to have a range of friendships I wouldn't have had the capacity for if if I was married. So all of those things really have become precious to me. Um, so it did. Yeah, I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful um, for, for the, for those opportunities singleness has given me. You tell one story, Sam, and I think it's about a mutual friend that we share in the book that where you're able to drive their kids to school and drop them off at school. And I think that's really a tender and special story of just being able to have that opportunity to be welcomed into their family and talk about, and then you talk about later on, uh, Rosaria Butterfield in the book and how the gospel comes with a house key. 
some people have been extremely generous to me in opening up their homes and opening up their family life. And um, yeah, that's a precious thing. I mean, I don't take that lightly. And to be involved with the kids' bedtime routine and to, to say prayers or read the Bible with them or um, all those sorts of, to, just to be part of some of those family moments, that, that's very meaningful. Yeah, but then singleness, there's another myth that you mentioned. It's how singleness hinders ministry. I've often heard, having been in vocational ministry over the years, it's that I've heard it said that churches shouldn't hire a single pastor or even uh, especially hire a single youth pastor. Speak to that a little bit about that myth. Yeah, I think um, there's often an assumption that if you're single, there must be something wrong with you, uh, that you're not mature enough as a Christian, you've not kind of People often see marriage as a kind of Christian form of graduation. <clears throat> so once you've married, you've kind of graduated into mature, proper Christianity. And um, so I think sometimes people assume if you're if you're single, you must be there must be something up there. That's suspicious. Um, yeah. Sometimes I think churches think if you if you're married, they're going to get a bonus extra staff member for free. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of dynamics like that, but I, 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 you know, Paul is assuming marriage is the norm. He's not insisting on it. In the in the places where he says that the pastor should be a husband of, of one wife, he's not prescribing that all pastors be married. He is saying that married pastors need to be faithfully married. Um, just as he says their children should be obedient doesn't mean Paul is ruling out childless couples or even, you know, a pastor who's only got one child and therefore he can't say his children, plural, exactly uh, are obedient. So Paul is not making the point that pastors must be married. He's assuming they will be because that's the, the kind of, that's more far more common. But elsewhere, Paul talks about ways in which singleness can can mean actually your service to Christ is less. Um, you're being pulled in less directions. You can be more, Paul talks about being more devoted in, in terms of single-mindedness. Um, so actually, there, there, are, there are ways in which it can, it can be an advantage to be single. Um, and you don't have to have the same life experience to the as the people you're ministering to in order to be able to minister to them faithfully so i can still teach on what the bible says about marriage um i can still teach what the bible says about parents not exasperating kids and kids being obedient to parents um what qualifies us is is that we are faithfully teaching god's word and and shepherding his people yeah so i'm not advocating for i'm not campaigning for single pastors but i i do want to push back on churches that would say we can't have a single pastor or but that's a sort of second best well the myth of singleness um there's the one about wasting your sexuality i want to press into this one because i think it's really important for those that i hope will be listening to this podcast but it, it's interesting um, that spoon you described in the book and the friend that has this, this spoon with the hole in it, I found that 
very captivating because my grandma co- collected spoons, and I remember that in the collection she had one of those spoons with a hole, um, and I was really intrigued by that and how your friend used that that particular spoon um, for entertainment. So maybe describe that and unpack that story just a little bit and how uh, it re- uh, applies to biblical sexuality, if you would. Just, just a random thing, but it's a friend of mine who just he found no idea where it came from. But he found a, a spoon that had a hole in it, and so he had no idea what it was for. So he would keep it in his sugar bowl just to see how people reacted to it, <laughs> and kind of tease people. And he later found out it was an olive spoon. So it was designed if you put the spoon in a jar of olives, as you lift up an olive, it drains. Um, and the point of that really is that. When you understand what it's for, you can make sense of the way it is. And that's, that's true of God's purpose for human sexuality. It's true of many things. When we know what our sexuality is for, we can begin to make sense of, of why it is that God has made us as sexual beings in the way that yeah. why if this affects us in the way that it does. So that was the point of that. So just trying to think through the big picture of why God has made us sexual beings to start with. And obviously we know part of that is reproduction and and the fellowship within marriage, but there's, there's also a bigger picture dimension in the Bible that it's, it's meant to be a signpost to the ultimate marriage between Christ and the church, the Mm -hmm. grand romance. Um, And the fact that our, you know that there will be that there are deeper longings in our hearts than the ones for romantic fulfillment and there's a, a greater union and there'll be a much better consummation sure uh, we are truly with christ so yeah that that's the the point of all of that is to is to try and and show that actually if if we're stewarding our singleness in the right kind of way then far from it being a waste of our sexuality, we're actually fulfilling the ultimate purpose of our sexuality, which is to point us to Christ mm. and what we have in him and what we await in him. Yeah, that's so good. And later on you quote N.T. Wright where he says, the biblical picture of man and woman together in marriage is not something about which we can say, oh, well, they had a funny idea back then. We know better now. The biblical view of marriage is part of the larger whole of new creation and symbolizes the point of that divine plan. Marriage is a sign of all the things in heaven and earth coming together in Christ. I just so appreciate that. I appreciate N.T. Wright and thinking about how how that we have somehow this better new revelation and that millennia, um, you know, and we have a better idea now than the millennia that preceded us. You know, I'm thankful for the guys like him and how and you, uh, and I appreciate uh, you bringing him into this book because you know we don't have some better idea now uh, than than the the generations that preceded us. So, um, boy, you know, I, I'm just really glad for your wisdom. He's been very very helpful on a number of yeah. those those things. Yep, and finally, maybe that last myth that you can talk about, bringing up the one that um, concludes by just simply saying that singleness is easy. Talk to me for a minute about that. Yeah, so sometimes I think, you know, I remember having a a church member say to me many years ago, well, life's much easier for you, obviously, isn't it, because you don't have a family. (laughs) For someone who was dealing with a difficult family situation of her own. And I think people sometimes assume that, Although singleness can make life 
a bit more streamlined in terms of less less complex. That doesn't necessarily mean it's more easy. And you know, for many of us, the the absence of a spouse can be can be deeply felt. Um, there can be fears of who we're going to grow old with and whether <clears throat> we're going to be on our own when we're in old age. Um, there's, there's the fact that our culture and our, sadly, sometimes our church culture doesn't always prize friendship as highly as it ought. And therefore, even when we do have friendships, that they can feel very insecure as people will often move on uh, and, you know, people will, will, will move for, for family, they'll move for money. Very few people will kind of factor in their friends. Yeah. And so as a, as a single person, it can feel like there's quite a provisionality to, to many of our friendships because we don't really know if people are going to be sticking around for the long term. So all of those things can make, you know, there are some deep, um, deep challenges, deep, deep pains that can be associated with that. Um, marriage, of course, is also not easy. So I'm not saying that one is easier or harder than the other. But it helps married people, I think, to understand some of the unique difficulties and pains of singleness, just as it there's a responsibility for us who are single to understand the some of the challenges and pains of our friends who are married. It's how we can better support and care for each other. Yep. And I, one of the things that uh, the way that you wrap up the book is the trustworthiness of God and how we can trust that he has put us together and what he's doing with regard to relationships or even lack thereof. And and you quote later on Psalm 139 where he, he has searched us and known us. He knows when uh, he knows us when we sit and when we lie down, when we rise up, and he discerns our thoughts from afar off. And you know this uh, song of David is so comforting to know that God has this plan for us and he's knit us together in complete, so completely and thoroughly. And Sam, I appreciate um, that as we uh, think through this, the way that he's made us, how he's knit us together. And just as I read this book, I appreciate your candor and tra- your transparency and authenticity. I just have to know that you've written this book for people that, that really need this, uh, this message right here and right now. As I've gotten to know you, Sam, a little bit over the years, um, I can almost read this voice, uh, or I can read this book in my inner Sam Alberry voice to hear uh, the the book written in your your tender pastoral heart. So I just wanted to thank you um, for writing a book like this. You're a real real um, gift to the church. Very kind of you to say. Um, well, it's a pleasure to know you too, and I'm so grateful for your ministry. Isn't it crazy that we get to do anything for the Lord? You know, it's a humbling thing, isn't it? And it's crazy to to use your word. You're absolutely right. I mean, the fact that God would limit himself through somebody like you and somebody like me, it's quite amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is extraordinary. Well, listen, I hope you survive the rest of the heat and the humidity of Nashville summer and do well and be well and keep in touch. And God bless you, my brother. Thank you so much. And the Lord bless you too. All right, Sam, take, take care and then we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and give a review on any podcast platform you use. For more information, visit azpolicy.org.